This is the Baymont Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we study the book of Daniel and its persistent and sometimes hidden message of perseverance. Yeah. We got a presentation today. A little bit. Yeah. yeah. A few slides should help us a little bit. Let me talk about some things that would be good if you can see visually, which probably gives you a hint at what you think we got coming. Yeah. If you've been listening don't, to our podcast. Don't open the presentation yet. You'll give the whole thing away. <laughs> Not yet. Um, yeah, so Daniel, our second of the exilic period, and Daniel is, man, I would not put him there date-wise, but content-wise, that's the content he's going to deal with. He, the, I mean, obviously, the prophet deals with, uh, the. And I got to call him a prophet. Jewish literature doesn't have him as a book in the Nevachim, has him in the Ketuvim, one of the last books of the Hebrew scriptures to be written. So the book of Daniel, um, definitely, I mean, the content definitely places the characters and the setting and all of that happens in Babylonian exile. No question about that. And that's why we put Daniel here to begin with. We're going to come back to that, I think, at the end of session two and pull that apart because I would not place Daniel there at all. I don't think Daniel was written for that. I think it uses that historical setting to make a totally different point. And I personally agree with what I understand most scholarship's position to be, which is that Daniel is one of the last books of the whole Hebrew scriptures to be written much, much later. I'm even going to say second century BC. I don't think it's that much of a stretch for people to think that uh, Daniel is not a prophet because most people actually want to read Daniel. Yeah. Most people don't want to read prophets. And that's true. It's very story based. Yeah. And I think the major pushback where we would get on that is is the this whole idea that Daniel's talking about the end times. It's all about the end times. It's all about this crystal ball, future reading, tells us about Jesus, all all that kind of stuff. And we we are so wound up about Daniel when it comes to apocalyptic uh theology, eschatology, and teaching on the end times. And so it's just a very, very popular book. Either people are unfamiliar with it or those that are familiar with it are pulling it out all the time to talk about current events and how Daniel said this stuff was going to happen. So that's an interesting, interesting little dance that we do around that. But Daniel, uh, let's see here. Many of us are familiar with Daniel. We know the stories. We know stories about Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. What? Who are they? Who are they? No. Who do we know them as, Brent? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I wish we didn't know him by those names. My, my, the Jewish heritage in me comes out and says, why do we not know him by their Hebrew names? We, we know him by the names that when they were taken off to Babylon, the Babylonians gave them new names to humiliate them. Like they were, they were, they were bullied into having these names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're names that praise Babylonian gods. And why we don't know them as Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, I will never know. But you've heard my little soapbox rant on that. So there you go. But we know about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. We know about them in the fiery furnace. We know about Daniel in the lion's den. Um, uh, we Probably know some of the most well-known stories in all of scripture, really. Yeah, sure. The Daniel fast, even. We know about Daniel praying in the window. We know about the statues and even some of the visions, even some of the apocalyptic visions in Daniel. We're really quite familiar with. So um, we're familiar with, uh, with, with Daniel, but Daniel has so much more taking place under the surface. I mean, ugh, Daniel is a treasure trove. It is a gold mine of literary stuff uh, going on underneath the surface. Uh, first of all, Daniel is is the only book in the Bible to be written in two different languages, as far as we have it and received it. Uh, 
almost the first half, Daniel opens. Chapter 1 of Daniel is written in Hebrew. So Daniel opens in Hebrew. But then the rest of the first half, chapters 2 through 7, Daniel chapters 2 through 7 are written in Aramaic. Not to be confused with Arabic. Right. Exactly. Uh, In fact, some people will call it Chaldean. Um, Aramaic was the Semitic language, the common language. It's the language of everybody. It was like the language that anybody in that part of the world would have spoken. Uh, You can think of it as a secular language. Um, And so it starts in Hebrew. And Hebrew is a language of like God's people, like Hebrew, the Jewish language of God's Jewish people. And and then you have Aramaic. So why do you think, Brent, what is your hunch? If the book is split into two halves, the first half and the back half, why is it after after the opening chapter, why do you think it all of a sudden switches to Aramaic? Well, it seems like they're in Babylon, and so that's just how everything's happening to them. Absolutely. It, like the language that the author chooses to use very much fits the context of the content of the book. It but then it switches to Hebrew. And if you're reading this as a Jewish reader, Brent, how do you think you feel when all of a sudden the back half of the book on the downhill slide goes back to Hebrew? Like, oh, yeah, the things are looking up. Okay, things are going to come back. Like, we're we're coming back to our homeland language. I wonder if we're going to come back to our homeland. Like, even the language choice paints a picture. So from a literary perspective, that alone, and that's just surface level, like really basic observations about just language usage there. Uh, Here's the notes I wrote about that. Uh, After giving us a brief introduction in Hebrew, the writer switches to Aramaic for the first half of the book. The gesture is an amazing literary tool in and of itself. With the first half of the book in the secular language, the simple language change alone gives the reader the subtle impression that we've lost our identity. Like what's, what happened to our Jewishness? What happened to our, that's how they're going to feel as they sit in exile. But the book comes down the hillside of hope. I like that, down the hillside of hope. That just happened. Um, the, the book comes down the hillside of hope in the language of Hebrew. You almost sense the message of restoration and hope without any of the content. Just the language choice alone uh, re- kind of affirms this perspective. Uh, but wait, Brent, we were saying that there's a first half and there's a second half to the book. Uh, by this time, beyond halfway in session two, when we think of first half and second half, we're all thinking, what? We've got a chiasm. We must have a chiasm on our hands. But in fact, not just a chiasm, but the book of Daniel ends up being the legendary double chiasm. And in fact, we were talking last night uh, before we recorded this, you've even found smaller chiasms. Yeah, I think they're pretty much everywhere in Daniel. So you have, and we might actually encounter this on our next podcast about whatever book is coming next, um, but that's going to that's gonna happen possibly in there. Um, but you have a double chiasm. I can't say double chiasm without thinking of the double rainbow guy from years ago. That's uh, completely appropriate. Double rainbow. Um, almost tempted to put that YouTube in the show notes. Um, so yeah, we have, we have, we have a double chiasm on our hands. What, the, what we mean by that is the you have a chiasm in half A and half B, but each half, half A and half B are chiasms in themselves. So you have a chiasm in the first half of the book, and you have a chiasm in the second half of the book, but then put them together and you're going to make another chiasm altogether. Kind of like in the preface in Genesis, we had eight chiasms that ended up forming a much larger 
chiasm. So what we're going to have here is, as I read it, Brent, we're going to have a message in chiasm A, what I'm going to call the first chiasm A. Then there, there must be a message in chiasm B. And then when you put the two chiasms together, you get this overarching message that's kind of my overall take home. And, and if I were to listen to this Aramaic slash Hebrew dance, I might think that chiasm A actually has a treasure for my time in exile. And uh, chiasm B has a treasure for my return, which means the larger chiasm is going to be, what is it that we are all waiting for? What is the big idea that kind of gets us from chiasm A to chiasm B? How is it that we're going to realize all of this hope? And so if you go to that presentation, you may open it now if you've been... If you've been good and kept it shut up to this point, you can open your presentation now. First little slide there, you probably have a a representation of chiasm A. You'll see chapter 2 mirroring chapter 7. They both have the image of a kingdom. One has a four-part statue, and the other one has four different beasts. Chapter 3 mirrors chapter 6 with uh, this refusal to worship. In chapter 3, they're thrown into the furnace. And in chapter uh, 6, Daniel is thrown into the den. Chapter 4, there's the fall of Nebuchadnezzar. Chapter 5 is the fall of Belshazzar. There's actually a ton of commentary. We don't have a whole lot of historical evidence. Like people argue about the historicity of Belshazzar. We actually have um, we have a lot of extra biblical evidence about Babylon. Like Babylon's a very well-documented empire. And there's no reference to Belshazzar anywhere. And so there's a lot of conversation about is Belshazzar and Nebuchadnezzar kind of the a similar thing or, or what's going on there. So there's a lot of discussion going on, but there's definitely a chiasm between two and seven, three and six, four and five. So the question of chiasm A, what's the center? You have Daniel 437 ends up being the center of chiasm A. Go ahead and read that to us. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Which you have this crazy... Like who, can you imagine Nebuchadnezzar saying these words? Like as Daniel, as this book is written, the author has these words coming out of the prideful, horrifically evil king Nebuchadnezzar. And these very words coming out of his mouth spoken by his lips about the amazing goodness of God. Um, Or maybe not the goodness of God. Let's see, how could we reword that? Uh, um, uh, everything he does is right and all his ways are just, which is what you're wrestling with as you speak Aramaic in Babylon. Like is God's ways just and this evil king, almost like a drama, almost like a play. The evil king comes out and these words are uttered, of course, of course your God is good and just. And that leads us to the second half of the book. Um, uh, we get our second prophecy or our second chiasm. Uh, on your next slide of your presentation, you'll see chiasm B, chapter 8, mirroring chapter 11. Both of them have prophecies, one about beasts, the other one about kings. Chapter 9 and chapter 10, chapter 9 is about trials and forgiveness. Chapter 10 is about trials and mourning. And, uh, and, and so we have this going on, which leads us to the question, what about the center of chiasm B? Well, that's going to be chapter 9. Verse 25 through 27, which I think you have that too, Brent. Will you read that? No one understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. 
It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After the sixty-two sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. Yeah, so we have, uh, I, I think back to Ezekiel, last podcast. Makes a ton of sense. We just have a bunch of sevens, no problem. Really confusing, right? This whole passage about just like the wheel within a wheel and beans with eyes and wings and there's 62 sevens and seven sevens and 77 sevens and what, what in the world is going on here with all these sevens. And then uh, I wanted to give the context to that. I didn't want to just read the center verse because there's a whole lot of stuff going on there. But go ahead and actually read just the center one, verse 26, 926. Just read that one more time so we have the center verse that sticks out to us. After the sixty-two sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, that's a passage that's gotten a ton of mileage in our end times discussions. I mean, I can't... If you're familiar at all about the end times eschatology conversation that surrounds Daniel, you know how big of a deal people have made the sevens conversation, the 77s, um, the seven sevens and the 62 sevens, uh, and how they've used that to many people have said pinpoint the birth of Jesus. And, and when you look at it, I don't want to take away, I don't want to take away at the allusions to w- w- what we see on this side of history, this side of Jesus, how we see Jesus in 926, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. I don't want to take away from the Jesus connection at all. That's not my point at all. But this is not what the original writer nor what the original audience would have seen when they read it. And we've talked about this before, Brent, when we read prophecy, we don't want to read it in a way where the original audience has to just scratch their head and go, I have no idea what that means. Like there must be some kind of meaning for them on its primary focus. They must have been able to get something out of that. Which is tricky in this regard, because that passage doesn't make much sense if Daniel is an exilic prophet. How is the restoration of uh, how is the message of restoration of the temple, the corruption of a king, the destruction of that temple again? I mean, it's already been destroyed. How do you place this in history if they're in exile? And that's part of the reason why I referenced earlier. I don't think Daniel was actually written as an exilic prophet. I think it's written much, much later, later, using this period of history as its backdrop, as its stage on which it tells the. But we'll talk about that more in a, in a future podcast. Um, but just hang on to that. But these two chiasms uh, form this staggering double chiasm. And it stands to rest that this double chiasm... Uh, would form a third and greater chiasm that we'll call chiasm C, the whole thing. This will be your next slide on your presentation. Is your head spinning yet? Because it probably should be. The writing of the book of Daniel is phenomenal in its depth and artistry. Let me lay out the big point chiasm of the entire book of Daniel for you. The center of this chiasm is held throughout Jewish thought almost without exception. There's not a whole lot of debate about where the center of this chiasm lies. Um, but you got chapter 1 and chapter 12, the prologue and the epilogue. Chapter 2, mirroring chapter 11, prophecies about kingdoms. You've got God's people in suffering, chapter 3, mirroring God's people in suffering in chapter 10. 
Chapter 4 and 5 is prophecies about the fall of a king. And chapter 9b is the prophecy about the fall of a king. Uh, chapter 6 is God's people in suffering. And chapter 9a, we have God's people in suffering. Chapter 7 and 8 end up lying at the center, which are two chapters about the prophecies of beasts, one of them being in Aramaic, chapter 7, and one of them being in Hebrew, chapter 8, which means that center, as it's been identified in almost all rabbinic literature, ends up being, and we show this, we see this show up in the New Testament, particularly in Jesus's own mouth over and over and over again. Jesus keeps referencing the book of Daniel, which may have been a very, very recent book, a very recent publication, if you will, when Jesus is doing his teaching. But the center of the whole thing, like the big idea, ends up being 7, 13, and 14. Go ahead and read that, Brent. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So the big idea of Daniel's book is, listen, in the midst of all of our suffering, whether it's Babylonian suffering or Greco-Roman suffering. There is coming a day, Daniel insists, where somebody is going to come. Somebody, some one like the Son of Man is going to come. And we'll come back to this in Jesus' teaching, and we'll pull this apart even more in session three. But there is coming a day where there is going to be a leader that comes, and he's going to stand before God, and, and another reference in Daniel, with the book of life in his hand. And he is going to give account. He's going to render judgment. He's going to make everything right. Daniel insists that there's coming a day when everything will be made right. To a group of people in exile, or later, to a group of people in exile, wondering with where is the justice of God, there is a chiasm buried here about the justice of God is coming. And so you have to persevere. You have to hang in there. You have to make it through because all of your righteousness, all of your faithfulness, all of your good deeds for this original audience, it's not going to go overlooked. It's not going to be empty because one will come like a son of man and will, will come in the clouds and will make everything right in the world. And it becomes this big um, apocalyptic, you could even say eschatological assertion that everything will be made right. I mean, from this is going, to spin, is going to spin out some of the Jewish ideas that revolve around the resurrection of the dead. Um, aside from Jesus and our belief in the resurrection in that way, the resurrection of the dead and Jewish thought, a lot of it swirled around this teaching here in Daniel, that there is coming a day where somebody's going to stand before the ancient of days and is going to make a case and is going to put the world right. And so Daniel really becomes about the son of man, ends up being our word for Daniel, son of man. Um, for our review, that's what we'll give as the image for the book of Daniel. I have some closing notes here. Let's see. Daniel gives a prophecy of hope that at some point a leader would come and would establish a new kingdom, one that would never pass away. In the meantime, God's people are left to stand along in the face of suffering. Stand strong, excuse me, in the face of suffering. To resist the pull and tug of empire, to stand and subvert a kingdom that attempts to make you bow to gods that are not your own. Daniel promises God's protection and rescue. Daniel promises God's presence. And Daniel promises a future and a hope. And as strong as these kingdoms and empires appear to be today, they will fail and they will fall. 
and one by one these kingdoms will give way to the next. Pride is ultimately, I mean, the thing about Nebuchadnezzar uh, in this whole book is this king who exalts himself. And Daniel ends with a whole passage towards the end of the book of Daniel about the king who exalts himself will be humbled. Pride is ultimately the thing that, that brings them down, and every king exalts and glorifies the kingdom that lasts forever. And so with faces set resolutely toward tomorrow, God's people set out to plod forward until the day they might see one like a son of man coming in the clouds of heaven. And that is the book of Daniel. Sounds great. Well, if you live on the Palouse, join us for discussion groups in Moscow on Tuesday or in Pullman on Wednesday. We've got a lot to talk about. Of course, you can always go to baymontestablishup.com. We've got a map there with discussion groups around the country. So check those out, and thanks for joining us on the Baymont Podcast. We'll talk to you again soon.